the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is there anything in your life that would keep you from being ready if Jesus came today? That's Pastor Mark Finley, and this is Hope Lives 365. At Hope Lives 365, we believe God answers prayer. Keep in mind this telephone number throughout today's broadcast, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Here's Pastor Mark. As we open the Word of God, let's bow our heads to pray and ask God to especially bless the service. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can come and open your book. We pray that the Holy Spirit that inspired the Word would come and inspire us as we study it today. Open our hearts, lift our vision, and grant to us the insights that can only come from your word in Christ's name. Amen. Many years ago, the first cousin of Queen Victoria, Lord Cecil, was converted in England. And rather than live a life of luxury, he committed himself to ministry. He crossed the Atlantic and came to Canada. And there in Canada, began sharing Jesus and his love in little villages in the back country of Canada, in the woodlands. He began sharing Jesus in the great Canadian cities. One day, as Lord Cecil was pastoring a little church, very similar to this one, but it was far more in the countryside than this, and he was on his way to church, and he saw a man chopping wood. Now, that man was one of his church members that should have been in church that day. And as Lord Cecil passed by, he recognized the man, and he recognized that this man who once knew Jesus was a backslider. And he wondered what to say. Well, he stopped and watched the man chop wood for a little while, and he cried across the fence as the man was chopping this wood, and as he should have been in church, Lord Cecil cried out, Brother, the Lord is coming. Stopped, cried out again, Brother, the Lord is coming. And Lord Cecil kept walking. Well, every chop of wood, that man kept thinking, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. And those words pierced his heart. Stopped chopping wood, went in and got his church clothes on, and was in church before the end of the sermon. If the Lord was coming, he certainly didn't want to miss it. The concept that Jesus Christ is going to return changes your life. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica about the second coming of Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians. The background of the letter to the church at Thessalonica is quite amazing. The Apostle Paul had visited Thessalonica in northern Greece and had held a short evangelistic meeting there. The Bible tells us that Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians for three Sabbaths, or three weeks, 
So Paul held at least a three-week evangelistic meeting in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city in northern Greece, in the area of Macedonia. Greece could be divided into two general parts, Macedonia and Achaia. And in Macedonia, you have Thessalonica and Philippi. That's the northern part of the country. More central or southern, you had the two major cities there of Athens and also uh, Corinth. When we turn to Thessalonians, Thessalonians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the new church that he raised up, he planted after a short evangelistic meeting that he had held there for at least three weeks. Now, Thessalonians is the only book in the Bible written largely by three people. Now, it's mostly written by Paul, but two others contributed. We discover that as you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is a longer name for Silas. So it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonians. So, Paul and Silas, two missionary evangelists, had visited Thessalonica. Timothy had been with them. And, in fact, Timothy came back to Thessalonica after Paul's preaching there. So they all contributed to Thessalonians. Paul points out that he was praying for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. We remember you and your work of faith and labor of love and patience. But Paul comes to the end of 1 Thessalonians 1. And one of the things we're going to discover as we study Thessalonians is that in every chapter of Thessalonians, Paul is emphasizing being prepared for the coming of Jesus. He emphasizes different aspects of the preparation of the coming of Jesus. So you're looking particularly at verse 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you're looking there at verse 9 and 10. Paul says, For they themselves, that is, those who haven't accepted Christ in Thessalonica, declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you. In other words, even those that didn't know Christ saw the power of our preaching, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul makes a contrast between the idols and God. He says the idols are not living. And he says they simply present falseness. But you've turned to the God who's living, the God who's true. Verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul, speaking to the Thessalonians, says, You are waiting for the God from heaven. You are living in expectation. This Christ that lived once, this Christ that walked the dusty streets of Galilee, this Jesus that touched the eyes of the blind and they were opened, and the ears of the deaf and they were unstopped, this Jesus that touched the withered man's arm and it was healed, this Jesus that touched the lame and they walked, this Jesus that raised the dead, this Christ is alive. He lives in heaven. And Jesus is coming again. You live life waiting for this Jesus to come. Notice verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven. You live with an expectation that Jesus Christ is coming and he's coming again. Paul counsels the church at Thessalonica. Never lose that sense that Jesus is going to return. The world that we live in today is a world that often squeezes out that expectation of Christ's coming. 
Every single day we live, students go to school and study. Those of us that go to work every single day are looking to try to make a living, to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, to pay the house payment, to pay the electrical bills. Those of us that have retired, simply we wonder what we used to do when we worked because time seems to get away from us with its many responsibilities. Often the things of time can crowd out the things of eternity. Early Christians lived on the knife edge of Christ's coming. They did not necessarily sense that it would be 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years before Jesus would return. But they lived with this expectation. The Christ that was here once, we long for him to come again. In fact, Paul was echoing Jesus' words. Keep a marker in 1 Thessalonians. We are going to go back to it. But take your Bible and turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter. Because in essence... The Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy were echoing Christ's words. We find that here in Matthew chapter 24. And look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44. Jesus longed that these Christians in the New Testament, first century, would always keep in mind the fact that he indeed was coming again. First century Christians lived with this sense of expectation. Matthew chapter 24, you're going to look at verse 44. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, Jesus deals with the signs of the times. He deals with preparation for his return. And in verse 44, Jesus says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect him. In other words, live in readiness. Live in preparation for the coming of Jesus. Live as if Jesus were coming today. You remember the story of HMS Richards from the Voice of Prophecy. He was holding a large evangelistic meeting and he was speaking about the signs of the times and that Jesus was coming soon. And a man stood up in the audience. He was a man in his 70s. And he began to shake his finger at Pastor Richards. He was a skeptic. And he said, Pastor Richards, Christ may not come for a 100 years. And Richards looked at the man. He said, Sir... Judging from your age, it's not going to be a hundred years for you. Put your hand upon your heart and you feel thump, 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 thump. It's not going to be a hundred years for you either. Did you read the story that made popular headlines? The snow came down in Michigan as well as Virginia. And the news reported that a man 44 years old went out to shovel the snow as he was picking it up, felt that knife-like stabbing pain in his heart and fell over dead. In fact, it reported that in Michigan, there were three, one 44, one about 52, and one about 58, shoveling snow. The next thing they know will be the glory of the coming of Christ in heaven, and hopefully they were Christians. We hope that's the next thing they know. We hope that they are up in the first resurrection. New Testament Christians lived their lives in readiness for the coming of Christ every moment. Luther Warren, an early Adventist, put it this way. The only way to be ready for the coming of Christ is to get ready and stay ready. The only way to be ready is to get ready and stay ready. William Miller, one of the early Adventists, now not a Seventh-day Adventist, ultimately looked forward to 1844 for the coming of Jesus. You know, there are those people that look at 1844 as a black 
spot on Seventh-day Adventist history. We don't see it that way at all. In fact, if you go back to the cross and the crucifixion of Christ, did the disciples who were looking forward to Jesus' return, did they sense in the New Testament, did these early disciples sense the Christ to be crucified? When the triumphal entry took place and Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, what did most of those people think? What did they think? They thought Christ was going to be crowned as king, didn't they? Did they have the prophecies in the Old Testament? Did they have them there? But did they confuse those Old Testament prophecies? And did most of those Jews look for Christ's coming kingdom in glory? And they were looking for the kingdom of glory, not the kingdom of grace, right? Isn't that what they were looking for? And they misunderstood the coming of the Messiah. They thought Jesus was going to deliver them from the Roman armies. They thought Christ was going to be the one that could vanquish the Roman armies. They thought Israel would be prominent. Christ came not as the king to reign, but as the savior to die. When Christ died on the cross, they said, we thought he was going to be the one that would deliver Israel. They were deeply disappointed. They had misunderstood prophecy. And out of the disappointment of 31 AD, God raised up the New Testament Christian church. So there were many Methodists and Catholics and Baptists who had studied the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And they believed Jesus was going to come in 1844. And they were bitterly disappointed. But just like in the first century, out of that disappointment, God rose up his Adventist movement to herald his truth to the ends of the earth. William Miller did not establish the day 1844, but he eventually accepted it. After the disappointment passed and Jesus did not come, Miller wrote a letter to his friend Joshua V. Himes. And this is the letter that he wrote on November 10, 1844. Now, October 22, 1844, Jesus did not come. You'd think that Miller would be tremendously disappointed. You'd think he would be fabulously discouraged. Here's what he writes. Although I have been twice disappointed, because first he thought Jesus was going to come in the spring, then later in the fall. Although I've been twice disappointed, I am not yet cast down or discouraged. My hope in the coming of Christ is as strong as ever. I have done only what after years of sober consideration I felt to be my solemn duty to do. I have fixed my mind on another time. And here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. What was that other time that Miller fixed his mind on? That is today and today and today until he comes. And I see him for whom my soul yearns. What was that further time that William Miller fixed his mind on? It was today and today and today. What was the counsel that the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Thessalonica? Chapter 1. Live in the expectation of the coming of Christ. For you, it may be today. Live as if Jesus Christ were coming today. Is there anything in your life that would keep you from being ready if Jesus came today. Is that thing worth it? You say, well, he's not coming today. All this has to take place before he comes. If that is your thinking, you'll not be ready when he comes.
The only way to be ready is to get ready and stay ready. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica with a pen dipped in the urgency of the second coming of Christ. Chapter 1. Live in expectation that Christ is coming soon. Be ready. Chapter 2. Back to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2. In the second chapter of Thessalonians, a short chapter, there's 19 verses. The Apostle Paul speaks about the challenges he had in Philippi. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi. To be an apostle in the first century was not easy. Paul had been stoned, he had been shipwrecked, he had been beaten. He had spent three days and three nights in the sea. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel in much conflict. So Paul says, we have spoken to you the gospel in much conflict. Paul came to Thessalonica. He was there for three weeks holding an evangelistic meeting. And as he was holding that meeting, there were riots. The ultra-fanatical Jews cast him out of the city. He had to leave very quickly. So he didn't know the result of his work. He looked back at Thessalonica and saw how God blessed and an entire new church was raised up. So that's the conflict that he was speaking about, this persecution that he suffered there. As he comes to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this is true in every chapter, all five chapters, he again reminds them that Christ is coming, but he gives them a different appeal here. 1 Thessalonians, you're looking there at chapter 2. You let your eyes drop down to verse 17, 18, 19. But we brethren, he's speaking to the church at Thessalonica, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence. In other words, we had to leave. We are being persecuted. We are being beaten. We may have lost our lives. But we haven't left you in heart. Thessalonica, you are in our heart. You're in our mind. Endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. The old French proverb, absence... From the eyes makes the heart grow fonder. You know that one in French. I memorized it in French, but I forgot it. But my French teacher made me memorize French proverbs, but I still forget them now. So absence from the eyes makes the heart grow fonder. So Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica, I am absent. I'm not with you any longer, but my heart longs to be with you. Then he says, verse 18, therefore we wanted to come again to you. Even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, don't miss that. That one phrase is here for somebody this morning. Satan hindered us. Satan can hinder the plans of God, but he can never hinder the purposes of God. Satan can hinder the plans of God, but he can never hinder the purposes of God. Paul planned to go back to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered it. But God had an overall purpose for Thessalonica that Satan could never hinder. Satan may hinder certain plans you have in your life. You may have certain plans. You may have certain dreams. You may have certain things you want to accomplish in your life. Satan can hinder those. But God's overall purpose for your life is going to be accomplished. Satan can never hinder God's purpose for your life. Now notice what Scripture says, verse 19. For what is our hope? Paul raised the question. What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? 
So Paul said, what is our hope? What's our joy? What do I hope to see in heaven? What's my joy in heaven? What is my crown of rejoicing in heaven? Now this interesting, in the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek. There are two words for crown. One is kingly crown that a royal king wears. That's not the word used here. The other word is the crown that somebody would get in the Greek Olympics. So the crown that a person would wear if they won a Greek Olympic race. It is the crown of the victor. It is the thing they prize most. So Paul is saying, verse 19, what is our hope? What do I really hope to see in heaven? What is my joy in heaven? What's that going to be? Is it the mansion? What is the crown? What is the victory, the prize that I'm going to receive? And what does he say? Verse 19. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul said, I live my life with a sense of purpose. My greatest hope is to meet my friends in heaven. My greatest joy is to warmly embrace you there. There are many things in life that are transitory. There are many things in life that are here today and are gone tomorrow. But Paul said, I want to make an impact in life. I want to touch somebody's life for Christ. I want to witness to somebody for Christ. My greatest joy is to see you in heaven. What is Paul saying to the church at Thessalonica? He is saying, live your life with purpose. Don't live your life for things that pass away. Don't live your life for things that are going to fade away quickly in insignificance. Don't live your life simply for the money you can make, for the house that you can live in, for the car that you can drive, for the boards that you can sit on. That is all transitory stuff. Put your life in something that counts for all eternity. Touch somebody for the kingdom of God. Find somebody that you can pray with. Give a Bible to somebody. Give a Bible study to somebody. This will be our greatest joy in heaven. Charles Studd grasped the significance of living life with a purpose. He had immersed his life in sports. He was brought up in England and he played cricket. In 1884, Charles Studd was a great cricket player in England, loved cricket. And he was on the English cricket team. But his brother was taken ill, Charles. Cricket didn't seem so important when Charles was dying. And he began to think, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? And although he was a Christian, he was in an unhappy, very backslidden state. He said, I know that cricket would not last, and the honor of being on England's cricket team would not last, and nothing in the world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. You may have read in history about the Cambridge Seven. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, came to Cambridge, and he spoke to the students, and he made an appeal, and seven committed their lives to mission. And Charles Studd was one of them. He said, there's something more important than sports. There's something more important than cricket. I've got to live life with purpose. I've got to live life that's worthwhile. And Charles Studd left the Cambridge education behind. He spent 15 years as a missionary in China. Then he went on to India and spent six years there. He had a real burden for Africa. He spent 20 years among the villages in Africa. And while there in Africa, he wrote 
words that some of you are going to be familiar with. Here are his words. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget that you can find today's broadcast online at hopelives365.com. Survival is big business these days. People spend thousands of dollars on wilderness survival camps. They want to learn how to survive in light of all of these unprecedented natural disasters and the potential for nuclear attack. But there's one area that most people don't give much thought to, and that is spiritual survival. Pastor Mark's book, The Ultimate Survivor, will provide you with practical steps on how you can survive spiritually. And call right now to get that book. We'd love for you to have a copy. Don't forget that our prayer team is also available at that number 24-7 to pray with you. Join us again next time on Hope Lives 365. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.